Why has this year's flu season seemed more severe than those in the past? Are the vaccines working? Are influenza strains more difficult to predict? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that drives cures to patients by repurposing current therapies for new uses. Joining me to discuss the efficacy of this year's vaccinations from the CDC's National Center for Infectious and Respiratory Diseases in Atlanta, Georgia, is vaccination and immunization expert, Dr. Tony Fiore, a medical epidemiologist and a captain with the U.S. Public Health Service. Dr. Fiore, welcome to ReachMD. I'm happy to be here. There's a lot of talk in the news for years about viral vaccinations, especially because of the worry about bird flu pandemics. Who decides which viral targets to create vaccines for? On a global level, the WHO has an advisory committee that meets twice a year. In the U.S., there's an advisory committee that's convened by the Food and Drug Administration that picks the vaccine strains, and this occurs every February. How do they make that decision? What's the basis for doing that? It must be a long and technical kind of a process. How do they make those choices? Well, the biggest factor in the decision are the surveillance information. We have surveillance for viruses all throughout the U.S., and in fact, there's actually surveillance all throughout the world. The viruses are gathered in our participating laboratories, and they're characterized. They often have their sequence examined. They have their antigenic characteristics examined through animal studies and through other molecular-type studies. And this is brought to the FDA to describe the sorts of viruses that are circulating at the time the decision is made. But there are other things that go into it, too, and that most often has to do with how well candidate vaccine strains can grow in the situations that we require them to grow in in order to make the vaccine. So that's a factor also. Is there sort of a general transference of influenza around the globe, kind of, you know, like the air currents that we know these things pass through so that we can make some predictions? There is, but we're not fully able to really tell what's going to happen. Uh, Certainly, we look carefully at data from other parts of the world, in particular the southern hemisphere, since their winter is our summer, and examine what sorts of strains have been circulating in those areas. Global travel and the sort of widespread ability of people to go from one place to another, does that change the whole process of trying to decide what flu vaccines to make? Well, we certainly have seen instances where people have brought influenza from one place to another, but but influenza has been a global disease since before the time of air travel. So I think the virus itself is perfectly capable of moving around the world without the assistance of aircraft. How much does influenza impact people more in the winter months than the summer, and why is that? That is a bit of a mystery, actually. There have been a number of of theories put forth. Of course, as you know, other respiratory viruses also uh, often peak in the winter, and and it's thought that might be due to crowding or to cold or to less sunlight, but it's actually not entirely clear why we have winter epidemics of respiratory viruses in general and, and also of influenza. So the World Health Organization does this on a global basis, and we have our FDA. Do other countries also have something like an FDA, and do all those organizations get together, or is it possible that one country will have a different flu vaccine than another country? It's possible that one country can take a different vaccine, and actually it it happens fairly often, not usually between the FDA and the WHO, but I know that countries like Japan often will make their own decisions. But the experts that make the recommendations in countries such as Japan, which which has a very large laboratory for viral surveillance, are always represented at the WHO meetings. And so there's a lot of sharing of information that goes on. 
And how far in advance do we have to make this decision in order to get the vaccines made for a particular year? Well, that's one of the great challenges. The recommendations, as I mentioned, are made every February, and what that means is that the FDA just made the recommendation for the upcoming flu season in February. So what that means is that you are making a recommendation for a vaccine that's going to be given probably six or eight months later, and in fact, it's probably going to be most important to be effective approximately one year before the peak of the flu season. In other words, we just had our peak this past February, and at the same time, we were making recommendations for the next year. You know, we all bet on sports teams and do other kinds of stuff, so we know sort of the percentages of being right, or even like weather forecasters. How good is the WHO and FDA at making a good decision about what vaccines we should be making each year? In most years, they do quite well. I think we've had uh, over 85, 90% of years that have been considered to be a good match, and that means that the circulating strains have mostly been similar to the vaccine strains. But when the virus changes quickly, um, when we we don't have good vaccine candidates, we will sometimes have a strain in the vaccine that doesn't match very well with some of the circulating strains. And and that's what we've seen this past year, but it's not really an unusual occurrence. It happens a couple times a decade. So tell us a little bit more about these vaccine candidates. Help us to understand a little bit more what you're talking about, good vaccine candidates versus bad vaccine candidates. Well, a good vaccine candidate is one that has been shown to circulate in in a lot of people that is capable of stimulating a good antibody response and that grows in eggs and that's actually a key component of it because that's how the vaccines are made they grow in eggs and so vaccines that grow in people but not in eggs end up not being good candidates for vaccine if you've just tuned in you're listening to the clinicians roundtable on reach md xm 157 the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and I am speaking with Dr. Tony Fiore, a vaccination and immunization expert from the CDC in Atlanta about flu vaccines. Are we looking at other ways of making flu vaccines besides using the old egg model? Yes. The federal government has made a very large investment in the past couple of years, largely because of concerns about pandemic flu and helping the manufacturers to begin to look at other methods of making the vaccine. And the manufacturers themselves have also stepped up with a lot of research. I mean, there's a number of different ways that are thought to be possible candidates. Probably the one that's closest to market is growing the vaccine in cell culture rather than eggs. And that would do a couple of things. It would reduce the problem that we have with a small minority of people who have egg allergies and they can't get the vaccine. And also appears to be a way that the vaccine might be made a little more quickly. Would that also help with the issue of strains that grow in humans but don't grow in eggs, that we might actually be able to create a vaccine against those poor candidates? It would, assuming that we don't end up having some step where the vaccine strains are grown in eggs. Often that's where the early isolation occurs, even for the cell culture-based vaccines. And so if we can get beyond the need to use eggs to grow vaccine strains at any stage, I think we would overcome that hurdle. This year, for the first time, the FDA voted to change all three strains that the vaccine is going to be made against. How did this happen, and is this going to be a regular occurrence going forward? Well, it is the first time in recent memory that that's happened, certainly. But I don't know that that portends that will more commonly change out strains. We had a sort of a confluence of a couple factors this year that caused there to be a need to change all three strains, and I don't see that as predictive of having to do that in the future. But if it does happen, the manufacturers can handle it. I mean, they know how to, to change out the strains. What were those factors that caused us to make that radical decision? I don't know that it was a radical decision because the decision is sort of made, it's three decisions because there are three strains. 
starting with the easiest one to explain, the influenza B strain. We have one influenza B strain in each year's vaccine and two influenza A strains. The influenza B strains that circulate sort of fall into two different camps, if you will. They're called lineages. And unfortunately, in the last 10 years, we've seen co-circulation of these two lineages. Before that time, usually one lineage predominated. It was clear that this past year, for the influenza B strain, the lineage that was chosen for the vaccine, in which we saw a lot of in the previous two influenza seasons, was not going to be the predominant one this year. And so it was pretty clear that we needed to change the influenza B strain. For the influenza A H1N1 strain, one of the two influenza A strains, there is a trend beginning in early January for the influenza A H1N1 strains to change slightly in such a way that it appeared to be a pretty clear need to change the vaccine for the upcoming year. For the influenza H3N2 strains, and these are probably the most difficult ones to work with, the most difficult ones to grow, we knew going into this season that we faced some prospect of having difficulty with the H3N2 strain because there were not very good vaccine candidates last year and because the Southern Hemisphere last summer or summer had seen a lot of influenza H3N2 strains that were not very similar to the vaccine strain. For differing reasons, it became clear that all three of them needed to be changed. Now, those are the types of reasons you see in other years. It's just somewhat unusual that all three of them would have their reason for change come up in the same year. And how come we don't make a flu vaccine, for example, to six different strains and then, you know, be able to better predict or better control if things change? It actually, technically speaking, could be done. But the problem is just manufacturing capacity. It's an enormous challenge for the manufacturers just to get three strains together. They have plants that they manufacture these strains sequentially. If we could shorten the time that's required to manufacture them or expand plant capacity, it would be possible to do more strains. But on the other hand, in terms of sort of cost and technical difficulty, it seems most logical to stick with the relatively small number of strains and attempt to cover the majority of strains rather than to slightly increase the coverage in exchange for having one more component put into the vaccine. What's the difference between influenza and the other things that we do vaccinations for where it seems like if we get one or a series at early age, we're protected for a longer period of time? Well, influenza has the capacity to change its genetic makeup much more readily than many other infectious disease pathogens do. The lasting immunity that comes with vaccination for some of these other things like measles is mirrored by the natural infection. In other words, pre-vaccination, you got measles once and then you're immune for the rest of your life. But influenza has always been different that way. It's having an influenza when you're seven doesn't do much for you when you're 10 and you're exposed to influenza viruses again because at that point they've changed and also your immunity has probably waned somewhat. The vaccines, in a sense, mimic the natural infection in the fact that they are not successful at giving you blanket protection over a number of years. And for this year, did the vaccine that we give actually provide some protection or did we just sort of swing and miss completely? No, I don't think it was a miss completely at all. We are just now getting the data together, but preliminarily we are seeing reductions in effectiveness compared to years when you have a good match. And, and that's somewhat predictable based on the fact that we're seeing strains that are circulating that are not, not as similar as we'd like to the strains that are in the vaccine. But there's a couple important things to remember about the strain match. One is that in any individual community, you might well have quite a good match. For example, the H1N1 component actually matched the vaccine strain quite well this year. If your community had influenza AH1N1 predominantly, you probably had pretty good protection. The second thing is that even when the strains don't match perfectly, 
you still enjoy some protection against more severe outcomes. In other words, the vaccine may not be able to prevent you from getting infected, but it may give you enough immunity that you can fight off severe infection. So it might not keep you from missing work, but it might keep you out of the hospital. This has been a tough flu season for everyone, including the healthcare providers who treat the patients. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Tony Fiore, a vaccination and immunization expert from the CDC in Atlanta, for talking to us about the guidelines for flu vaccinations, as well as how flu vaccines are made. I'm attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments. Please visit us at ReachMD.com, where you can find our new on-demand and podcast features that will allow you access to our entire program library. And thank you for listening. This is Dr. Brian Carter, Professor of Pediatrics at Vanderbilt Children's Hospital in Nashville, Tennessee. And you are listening to ReachMD, XM 157, the channel for medical professionals.